2: This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. On August 10th, 2018, infamous sexual offender Jeffrey Epstein was found dead in his cell at the Metropolitan Correctional Center. After Epstein's death, the world and authorities began to take a closer look at his longtime female companion, an alleged right-hand woman. This is episode 27, The Ghislaine Maxwell Story.
1: All righty. All right, Megan, before we get started on your fascinating case for the day, we have a few patrons to shout out. I'm ready. First, I would like to say a big hello and thank you to Emily from Pflugerville, Texas. I did not know a place existed. Pflugerville, I love the name. I love it. It's right by Austin. Oh, okay. Look thank look
2: you. Up.
1: Hi, Emily. Thank you. Thank you. And then we have Lisa Perry from Bridgewater, New Jersey. Bridgewater, I know. Right right around Lisa. around the
2: corner. Thank you, Lisa. I think Lisa actually wrote to us as well, um, which is great. I love the correspondence from yes. our patrons.
1: And then lastly, thank you so much to Olivia R. Thank you, Olivia. Thank you so much to all of you who support us. It means so much to us.
2: And without further ado, today's episode with special guest, Dr. Alexa Sardinia. So welcome back to Women in Crime, everyone, this week and... We decided to give Amy the week off, so we have a very special guest host this week to discuss the many topics related to Ghislaine Maxwell. We are here joined by Alexa Sardina, professor of criminal justice at California State University in Sacramento. Hi, Alexa. Hello, Megan. Thank you for having me. We are psyched to have you. So for the audience, Alexa specializes in research on sexual violence, and more specifically, female sex offenders which makes her particularly apt to help us with today's episode and we're really excited i should also tell you all that alexa has a wonderful new podcast which i have binged and i love and it's called beyond fear the sex crimes podcast in which she and her co-host Alyssa ackerman discuss all of the myths and realities of sexual violence in the united states I highly recommend this podcast. It's fabulous. Thank
0: you. Thank you, Megan. You're
2: welcome. And Alyssa, we met because Alyssa and I have been colleagues for a very long time, but more so we're also good friends. And so Alyssa was able to put us together, which is very exciting. New friends, Mm -hmm. new partnerships. And very cool. So thank you, everyone, for tuning in. This will be a special episode. And here's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to start off, like I usually do, by telling you about Ghislaine Maxwell and giving you the background. I'm not going to dive into every detail of Ghislaine's alleged crimes, um, because you can get a lot of that from documentaries and other sources, and because what I really want to get to, and the reason Alexa's here, is so we can really look at the background of Ghislaine's offending her possible motives, you know, what kind of offender she might be, and so that's the more important part of today's episode. Uh, Also, as a reminder, Ghislaine Maxwell is currently being held um, with no bail. She's been arrested, but she has not been convicted of a crime yet. So when we discuss today's episodes, I'll be referring to her alleged crimes because she's not convicted. So let's get started. Who is Ghislaine Maxwell? The question the world has been asking. (laughs) Ghislaine Maxwell was born on Christmas in 1961 in England to media baron Robert Maxwell. She was one of nine siblings— Though widely reported as favorite of her father and as evidenced by the naming of his boat, his yacht, his pride, prized mm-hmm. possession, which was Lady Ghislaine. Educated at all the top schools, Ghislaine enjoyed a life of privilege in Oxford. But her father's childhood was quite different and I think helps uh, helps give us a little background as to Ghislaine as well. So her father was originally born in Czechoslovakia but fled to France once his country fell to the Nazis and he joined the British Army. And um, it's also reported, unfortunately, that many of his family members died during the Holocaust and died at Auschwitz. So oh, I did not know that part of the story. Neither did I until I really started mm-hmm. digging in, and I think that's super interesting. Um, once yeah. the war ended, he married Ghislaine's mother, Elizabeth Maxwell, and she's a French-born Holocaust researcher. Very well known.
0: Huh. That's interesting. She, she wound too. up
2: getting a PhD later on in life, and she's been really integral. She established a journal in the field. Um, she's she's very reputable. After they got married, let's see, Maxwell bought Pergamon Press. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, I hope. And then more famously, he bought the Mirror Group newspapers, and, and that's mm-hmm. the one everyone knows. And with that purchase, he really became a media tycoon who rivaled Rupert Murdoch. So they had like a long kind of established rivalry, which was interesting. I was reading about that. And I guess they, they were yeah. trying to outbuy each other and whatnot. So, you know, he, wow. he's really up there in that world. Right. So he's well established and he's very successful, uh, very hard worker. But then tragedy strikes. Robert Maxwell drowns in November 1991. Mm-hmm. He, he disappeared from his yacht. It was either late one night or early one morning. And he was actually found by uh, rescue searchers in the water off the Canary Coast. Mm -hmm. The speculation begins there, though. Okay, so was it, you know, how did this happen? Was it a homicide? Was it a suicide or was it an accident? So did he stumble and fall off the boat or, you know, was there something more ominous going on here? Was there anyone else with him on the boat? That's something that I didn't. Find when i was it, they had you know, a captain there there was a crew there okay. was people who there was were, a whole crew okay i don't know how many were in the crew but there was definitely yeah. a, a small crew so okay. yes it was the reason why people speculated too like what was this something more ominous because it was revealed right after maxwell's death that he had stolen millions in pension funds from his workers and he mm. also accumulated millions in debt that nobody knew about so people were now going hmm was it you know right did he accidentally fall off the boat? They say sometimes he would like go to the bathroom in the middle of the night or something off the you know end. So did edge he, of the boat. Right. <laughs> right. I know. Exactly. So did he fall off the edge or did he um, was there a murder or was this a possible suicide because he knew this was about to be revealed? Yeah. Well, hmm. it was Ghislaine who addressed the media on her father's boat after his death. And she told the press that she believed her father was murdered. But this also was kind of the downfall financially for the family. So two of his Mm -hmm. sons were later indicted on fraud charges. They froze all the assets, you know, all the money. They had a lot of money and all the money Mm -hmm. was seemingly gone. So what does Ghislaine do after her father's death? She was very distraught. Family name is kind of ruined. What she Mm -hmm. did, Ghislaine moved to the United States and to New York more specifically. Though without the financial resources, she still bore the, the Maxwell name. So that's what re- yeah. she had. She was well connected. She knew people. She had served as some type of ambassador in New York. Mm-hmm. So she was also familiar with the New York scene. So I think I it see. was a very easy transition for her to come to mm-hmm. New York. So that was in, you know, 1991, 1992. And shortly after she arrives here in 1992, she met Jeffrey Epstein. And And while the two dated for some time, theirs was more of a long term companionship rather than a romance, as most of Mm -hmm. us now know and have seen. Elaine worked as a business consultant, but most of her endeavors seemed to revolve around Jeffrey Epstein, whether she was running his household, which she did, she ran several of his households, or coordinating his travel plans, or planning social events, and then unfortunately, and allegedly, organizing, facilitating, and participating in his sexual offending against underage females. Her world seemed to really revolve around Epstein. And I just want to I just want to keep that as a point or I want people to keep that in mind, actually, Mm -hmm. when we're taking this apart. For his part, Epstein was first. So I won't go into, again, the entire history, because um, you can get a lot of this information elsewhere. And we'll also cite our sources at the end so you can get that. Mm -hmm. For his part, Epstein was first prosecuted in 2006 for sexual abuse against minors, though his crimes were reported to the police and the FBI by Maria Farmer as early as 1996 for an assault on her and her younger sister, Annie. Um, mm. You've probably seen them in the news, right? They're very active in the investigations.
0: Yeah. I think I watched the documentary on Netflix, and I
2: think that they were
0: also featured in that. I do remember the the two sisters that were sort of the initial people to step forward.
2: Right. And the FBI didn't take her seriously. And it's mm-hmm. really heartbreaking in the documentary when you hear her talk about how afraid she was and how she really changed her whole Life. She kind of went into hiding. She says she didn't have children for this reason. And Mm -hmm. you realize how scared she she was and and nobody helped her. Mm -hmm. So we have documented as early as 1996 allegations of assault against Epstein, but nothing had come from that for several years. When he was eventually prosecuted, it was in 2006, and many people think that he struck a very sweet deal with former U.S. Attorney and U.S. Labor Secretary Alex Acosta. Mm -hmm. Have you seen the interviews with Acosta? I've seen a couple, yeah. So, okay, what happened was Epstein pleaded guilty to solicitation of prostitutes, including a minor. And In exchange, he registered as a sex offender, Mm -hmm. um, but he served just over a year in jail and he was given immunity from federal prosecution for almost every other charge. And he was allowed (sighs) to work. He was allowed on work release. I mean, it was really a sweetheart deal, considering totally. what his crimes were charges. And it, oh, yeah. And if you for recall, sure. I mean, Alex Acosta, he he stepped down uh, when this kind of hit when the news hit and when he was mm-hmm. he defended his actions, you know, saying, well, we got him to register a sex offender and we felt like, you know, we got something. I would disagree with that. And I'm sure most people would. Yes, absolutely. And you always have to look back to and go, wow, had they done the right thing then? Right. What you know, what the outcome or for so many women, it could have been so so much better and different today. I know. I know. Mm. I think of so many other
0: sort of of these high profile cases, like if the initial accusers against R. Kelly had been taken seriously right. or Cosby or, you know, in the gymnastics a USA Gymnastics scandal. Like there are just so many times where we see that again and again. So Another example. Definitely.
2: Another example, unfortunately. Yeah. What is Ghislaine's role then in Jeffrey's sexual offending? Let's get to that. So according to many of the victims of Jeffrey Epstein, Ghislaine Maxwell was a scout for victims, so to speak, recruiting mm-hmm. young females to come to Epstein's home and you know, give him massages. That's kind of the premise it always started out with. You know, yeah. come here and you know, it's he just likes massages. That's the way, mm-hmm. you know, to get people in. And while many of them said like it was weird, you know, Ghlaine had a had a good way of befriending these young females. She would take an interest in their art. She would take an interest in their school or their personal lives. She offered assistance in many ways. And many of these these girls were young and vulnerable. I mean that's, you know, mm-hmm one of the the key things that unites them here. And I think step by step, Ghislaine would then um, engage them in sexual abuse with Epstein and other men in his circle. Um, but it always mm-hmm. began like a premise of, you know, coming over to the house and we're interested in you and, oh, maybe you can work for us and we can help you. Right. Accusations include other activities such as Ghislaine undressing in front of young girls, massaging them as well and having them massage her And on some occasions, Ghislaine is alleged to have participated in the actual sexual assault against underage females. Again, these are still accusations and still alleged. One of Epstein's most vocal victims, uh, Virginia Roberts, I think it was Virginia Guffrey then or vice versa. She named Ghislaine as having facilitated sexual trafficking of her to several Mm -hmm. different men. But Ghislaine responded with a defamation suit against Virginia, claiming she was lying and defaming her good name. Mm -hmm. So what happened with that? Well, the two later settled the civil suit. But the testimony given by Ghislaine in those depositions is now going to be used against her in criminal charges. So that's really going to haunt her. Having filed that suit against her is now it's going to bite her in the it. It it definitely is. I I don't know if you saw this, Alexa, but some of the stuff was already leaked. Some of the documents were leaked. And I mean, you know, she's naming the big names, some of the ones you've heard already. And, yeah. you know, there's some this is explosive material. And, and yeah. as I understand it right now, the judge in her case ruled that it can be used at her criminal trial. Her, That's
0: going to be interesting. Her lawyers
2: are still fighting it. And we'll see if it's a definite. But, yeah, it's it's going to hurt. It's going to be a big ouch. It's, let's put it that way. It is. <laughs> So what happens to Ghislaine after, you know, this time? Well, Ghislaine moves in 2013 to Manchester-by-the-Sea in Massachusetts, living with her then-boyfriend, data tech CEO Scott Borgerson, and she managed to stay out of the spotlight for quite some time um, distancing herself from Epstein and you know keeping her distance. Unfortunately for her, following Epstein's death, she could no longer keep herself out of the spotlight. And there was right. a, a good number of years too in which uh, I read that Ghislaine had moved away. And this uh, this was early, like in two thousand five, two thousand six, that she had moved mm. away. She was starting a new life. She had a new boyfriend. Like you know, getting away from Epstein, but he was angry uh, and wanted, you know, he kind of wanted Ghislaine to revolve her life around him. Around so him. He corralled yeah. her back in. Um, so she comes back in. But 2013, it seems that she she makes this this break and she's starting a different life. She mm-hmm. was in the spotlight a lot for over, you know, the last couple of years before the last year. She was still at public events and still being photographed. And, you know, she visited England, visited the, the prince. Um, so she was still in the spotlight a lot, but the last year yeah. she went quiet and there was all this speculation about where did Galen go in 2019. Mm. So people were saying that, you know, every foreign country has been named and, oh, she's here, she's hiding out here. Yeah. And so there was a lot of speculation, but she was located by the FBI and they were surveilling her probably, you know, for quite some time, they say. So I want to imagine they were probably mm. surveilling her for the year where, you know, probably. it was not yeah. reported where she was, though speculation ran about her location. The FBI located her, and on July 2nd, 2020, Ghislaine was arrested at her 4,000-square-foot-plus home on over 100 Mm. acres of property in Bradford, New Hampshire. Uh, The house was purchased in cash in December 2019. Wow. Ghislaine and her husband, we're still not sure who the husband is, but it's been revealed that she's married. This just came out in court. What I did not know that just part. came out in court proceedings at her pre-trial or her bail hearing or preliminary hearing, whichever it was that she is married. They were living um, under fake names and under a fake story, under fake guys. She had se- she had security. Just so you know, the yeah. home was literally called Tucked Away. That was the name of it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I thought that was a great one, too. I couldn't get any no, more of her picture. So <laughs> Ghislaine was arrested and she was charged with multiple counts of sexual abuse and trafficking against minors in collusion with Jeffrey Epstein. She faces up to 35 years in prison for her alleged role in these crimes. She is currently being held without bail. Now, that is the nutshell summary of Ghislaine and, and Jeffrey Epstein. But now right. I'd like to. It's. I mean, it's, it's super interesting. I really want to turn to mm-hmm. you now, Alexa, to engage you with some of the questions. And I think these are questions that other people have. Even though this episode is about Ghislaine Maxwell, I think we need to begin with Jeffrey Epstein. Right. I think if I if you could help us discuss briefly his behavior and how you might classify him in terms of a sex offender, it would also help us to understand. Ghislaine and her behavior and also to highlight the differences maybe between male and female sex offenders it might be a good base. Sure.
0: Yeah. And so what's interesting, I think, about this case is that both Maxwell and Epstein diverged so much from the norm, or what we know about most sex offenders. For example, Epstein differs from the typical uh, male sex offender, because he's extremely wealthy, he's highly educated, um, he has no history of substance abuse or mental illness. So he's sort of hard to classify because he's simply very different than Mm. other uh, male sex offenders. Okay, it's also so there, it's sort of difficult to to put him in any sort of type or category. But if we look at some of the motivations of male sex offenders, those are pretty consistent. So I sort of see him as somebody that's motivated by power and control. And so we know, um, in most instances, sexual assault and rape are about power control and not sex. More evidence of this is that he really seemed to like to surround himself with powerful people, Mm. which I think something that's something that Maxwell also facilitated. So not just having those girls. But like you said, when she got to New York, she might not have had a ton of money, but she had that Rolodex of important people's names that she really brought to the table in the relationship and in terms of what I read. That's how I understood it. The last thing I was going to say is that he definitely, I think also if you look back on his behavior. It's pretty evident he operates with a certain level of entitlement. So he's superior to other people and he deserves to have his needs met despite what happens to others or whatever impact. That might have
2: on others. Does he fall into the groups uh, I've, I've taught this before, uh, where mm-hmm. s- uh, certain pedophiles differentiate or based on age? So his victims all seem to be between the age of fourteen and eighteen, or fourteen to twenty. Is that um, mm-hmm. was that would make him in a group of like ephibophiles or any of? The, does he meet any well, of those?
0: Yeah. So what's difficult about using the term pedophilia is that it's really not indicative of. It's just indicative of attraction. Okay. Um, So you could say that, yeah, maybe he is and that he's attracted to young women that fall into that age group. But, you know, his categorization, the way I look at it would be more based on his actions. And so to me, I see I would see him more as falling into a category of a rapist versus a child molester. Ah. And. When you start to look at those different typologies, there's several of them, but most of them are sort of divided into types that either focus on anger, power and control or humiliation. And so I do think that he would be that sort of power and control type. You know, he he doesn't seem to have used any sadistic violence against these victims that we know mm-hmm. of. And the anger rapist is typically trying to express some anger hostility that's built over time so I don't really see him as doing that I think when you look at the totality of what we know about him the power and control part really fits in there That makes
2: perfect sense. And I'm glad you thank you for distinguishing or differentiating too because I think there will be people who are going to use the pedophile term and not not have this background so thank you. Alexa, how does this no differ from female sex offenders? How does Epstein and his typology differ?
0: So what we know about female sex offenders is that they are significantly different in certain aspects of their demographics and characteristics. So they are similar to males in terms of things like age and race and education and uh, types of sex crimes they commit. So in this way. Um, Maxwell, like Epstein, differs from your typical female sex offender because she's wealthy, highly educated. She has no history of substance abuse either, no diagnosable mental illness. Okay. Um, but then when we look at the research that's compared male and female sex offenders, we see that female sex offenders are more likely to report significant histories of physical abuse, emotional abuse, or sexual abuse. So A lot of people who offend sexually have those histories, but what we found is that the stories in the background that female sex offenders have are usually much more extreme. Females, sex offenders are more likely to report coming from a dysfunctional home, to have psychological issues, including suicide attempts, and they're more likely to actually have male victims. Ah, okay. So she sort of diverges there too. But really the key difference between male and females is that approximately half of female sex offenders have a co-offending partner. Mm. And usually this is their partner is usually a male romantic partner. And so in that way, she's very consistent with what we know about female sex offenders.
2: When you say what we know about female sex offenders, I just want to be clear. I know there's research on Mm. it, but there's not much, right? No, there's really not much. Part of the reason is because of the prevalence rates of
0: female uh, sexual offendings. According to most sources, the best guess is that 10% of sex offenders are female, but there's also reason to believe that the that there are more female sex offenders out there than we know. But this research is based on women who have been convicted of sexual offenses. So we have a very small sort of sample population there to derive this information.
2: From. Even when I teach women in crime and we look at this section, they always say it's so limited. And most of what we know comes from the sort of school teacher conviction yes. pool. So yes. it's, you know, I'm like, wow, that's not going to provide us with, you know, uh, information about all
0: And some of the reason that there's an assumption that there are more female sex offenders than the official numbers suggest have to do with um, the way we view women in society. So there's there's this notion that uh, female sex offenders go more easily unnoticed because they can sort of disguise their behavior in their interactions with children. So it's very normal to see a woman changing a baby or bathing a baby. It's very normal to see women touching children, whereas maybe the same behaviors done by a man
2: would raise concern. That makes perfect sense.
0: Yeah. And so and there's also sort of connected to this this idea that we have that female sex offenders are this teacher that's, you know, kind of young and hot and has a relationship with like a 16 year old boy you know, that perpetuates this notion that female sex offending isn't harmful. Yes. And so it's not taken as seriously still, um, even by the criminal justice
2: system. Right. Um, Bringing it back to Mm -hmm. Ghislaine, I would like to get a little bit Mm -hmm. into, I think the question everyone wants to know, what were Ghislaine's motivations? And, Mm -hmm. you know, is this typical of most female sex offenders? You know, I know you said in some ways she diverges, but Can you talk about this aspect for us a little bit? Yeah, sure. So I actually read
0: something interesting. I think it was in a Vanity Fair article in which she was described as half ex-girlfriend, half employee, half best friend and half fixer, which I thought was very, a very interesting way to describe her relationship with.
2: I read that too.
0: Um, But she's also, yeah, it's it's a really kind of great explanation because that does seem to be like she filled all of these roles, right? So, you know, given that, and given the, you know, that this, she's definitely a person that has a co offending partner, like half of female sex offenders, that category is usually further divided into male accompanied offenders and male coerced offenders. So I believe she'd fall under male accompanied because she seems to have not been abused by Epstein in any physical way, and she didn't seem to fear him. And those are usually the the main ways that we would distinguish between the two. But I think she's motivated by the need to please Epstein. I think that has a lot to do with her behavior. When you were sharing about uh, how she would be doing all of these things for him and sort of her life revolving around him and taking care of his properties and whatever, it seems like. The need to please him was a driving force, really, into all of her behavior. There's also the possibility, though, that she did want to engage in these sexual acts with him and these young girls. And it could have been a combination of both, you know, and one could have developed separately after you know a certain time oh, that makes period. sense you know it was a long period of oh, yeah. time that she was engaging in this recruitment grooming
2: i'm stuff. glad you brought up uh grooming uh, this word is being mm-hmm. used a lot and i just want to make sure that we all understand uh, what what this is so can you explain to us what grooming is
0: yeah sure so grooming is um basically a premeditative behavior that's used to manipulate a victim into compliance so people that engage in child sexual abuse. Um, or in rape, can use these behaviors. And there's, you know, a variety of different types of grooming behaviors, but really the most common is some sort of emotional manipulation. So this can happen through talking the victim into having sex or doing favors in exchange for sex. And so I think that we see her engaging in a lot of this grooming as well. When we think about, you know, how she's, she interacted with a lot of these girls. She tried to befriend certain victims, it seems like asking about their lives, taking them shopping. And importantly, she really acclimated them to his behavior, to FC behavior. Oh. So tried to put them at ease. And really, they if you think about it from a perspective of you're, you're a young woman, you're getting advice basically from an older woman who you think you can trust. Um, about how to behave around this powerful person. right. And she also um, encouraged them to take money from him. so he would pay for trips in school, and she would encourage that behavior as well. So she definitely engaged in
2: grooming behavior for sure. I thought so as well. Um, yeah, interestingly, by this token, Elaine engaged in grooming behaviors, but do you believe that she was also groomed herself by Jeffrey Epstein? Oh, it's really hard to say
0: because we don't know that much about their relationship, their private relationships. Right. Together, right. Like every we can talk about people from the outside yes. looking in. But I think. That in order for her to be like so able to explicitly follow his instructions on what he wanted and his needs so specifically that she would have to have been manipulated or groomed in some sort of way. But I don't want that notion to diminish her responsibility or to
2: put her in the light of being
0: victimized. Right. It's, just, it's like a very fine it was line. The same you know? thing I thought and, when I was
2: asking the question uh, and I realized I'm like, I don't want anyone to misinterpret this and think that uh, we're then describing Ghislaine as a victim. It just struck me that right. possibly she was, I think the way you said it, he, I think he was able to manipulate mm-hmm. her.
0: Mm hmm. And I think it it sounds like that she was so, I don't want to say obsessed, but so concerned with him that she just wanted to please him at all costs. So, you know, that maybe she didn't take that much grooming. I also
2: think that she Um, was um, so happy to be back in the spotlight and to have all the attention and financial resources. And I think part of her motivation here is that she didn't want to lose her lifestyle again. You know, she kind of had to build it back mm -hmm. and I don't think she wanted to jeopardize that as well. Yeah, I agree.
0: I agree. So it's I, I look at it as him sort of having those finances that she lost and she had more of the contacts that he needed to be in that sort of big, you know, wealthy upper crust society that they became more of a part of.
2: I see it that way as well. One of the things that I want to ask you about is the charges here include sexual offending, but also sexual trafficking. And sometimes Mm -hmm. these two are now getting lumped together. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between offending and trafficking? Sure. So when we're talking about sex trafficking, that usually
0: means that there's a recruitment, harboring or transportation of an individual under some sort of force, fraud or coercion. And they're induced to perform a commercial sex act. Okay. So it does not have to include any travel or transportation or movement across borders. It's essentially characterized by the sexual exploitation through force, fraud, or coercion. Okay. So that's how you can sort of think of Sex trafficking. When we talk about sexual offenses or sexual assault, that's a little bit different. For example, sexual assault can include things like attacks or even just threats of attacks that involve unwanted sexual contact between a victim and offender with or without force. Um, it can also include verbal threats. And so uh, sexual assault is kind of a broad term um, for various, you know, sexual offenses. So I think that the best way for me to conceptualize or the way I conceptualize what happened is that these girls were trafficked. They were also sexually assaulted, some of them forcibly raped, um, which is another definition. But, you know, that those sort of fell within the context of all that's happening. So you can consider them victims of all of these.
2: And also, we're looking at trafficking in new and different ways now as well. So thank you Mm -hmm. for helping to clarify how we can view that and why it doesn't have to be that when we think of, you know, know, smuggling someone across the border. It's it's definitely a little bit, you know, it's broad. It's not broader than that, but it's I'm not sure how to say it, but it's. It's not the typical image that we have in our head,
0: right. And, you know, just like when we think about human trafficking, like it's it's they're very, they're more general, I guess, than you would
2: presume, right. the the characterizations are. Yeah well, thank you for that. No problem. This is speculation here. Mm-hmm. And I know we're getting into speculation a little <laughs> bit on this one, but, I wonder if Ghislaine would have been this type of offender on her own. If she never met Jeffrey, do you think that Ghislaine might have been an otherwise, you know, normal law abiding person or would she have offended in some other way or would she have, you know, it's speculation, I realize, but. What do you think? Well, I'm I'm honestly really curious to hear your opinion on this
0: because oh, good. you I'll are an give expert my opinion. here as well. And <laughs> I am very, very curious to hear what you have to say. I promise I'm not going to change my opinion based
2: on okay. what you said. OK, so I my opinion is that if she never met Jeffrey, she probably wouldn't have been a sexual offender but I think she would have been an offender of some type because of greed. Bam.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I agree. I agree. (laughs) I don't. Yeah. I think that he sort of brought out the sexual deviance in her, but yeah, I think we talked about her backstory her father's and brother's proclivity to sort of scam people and the way that she lost everything that she was used to, I think that she would have offended in some other way. I agree.
2: Which is also interesting about sexual offenders, right? Because sex uh, offenders will recidivate in many ways that are non-sexual as
1: well. Right.
0: Absolutely. A lot of people don't know that, that actually sex offenders typically, and especially those that complete treatment, tend to recidivate at very low rates for sexual Offenses
2: and you know moderate to low rates for other offenses. Mm, we'll have to see if that's going to apply to Ghislaine, and we'll we'll get to that in a minute. Right. <laughs> so because we are you know criminologists, I wanted to briefly discuss possible criminological theories that might also explain Ghislaine's behavior. Because I mm-hmm. immediately, not sure what you think, but I immediately think of control balance theory by Charles mm-hmm. Tittle. Um, okay, for anyone who doesn't know, control balance theory. Charles Tittle said that when people have a control deficit or they don't have enough control over their lives, they will offend. And if people have a control surplus, meaning they have way too much power and control to exercise, they will also offend. But they're going to offend in different ways. So people with a deficit are going to offend in like ways. um, This might explain actual, uh, maybe it explains rape when people are trying to exert their power over someone because they feel powerless. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. But crimes that they're trying to you know exert a certain amount of power or gain their power back but the the surplus part is where people are committing crimes of greed because they have no oversight and because why not they can so this is the theory that i think of and especially when you started talking about the power and control does this fit or are there other theories that you think fit with um, either Jeffrey or Ghislaine's behavior?
0: So I hadn't um, initially thought about control balance theory, because it doesn't really come up much when we talk about sexual theories of sexual offending, which is interesting, because I can see logically how that would make sense. But for me, I think the best ex- explanation, um, and we have to be really careful, because there are different theories Based on um, the sex of the offender, so theoretically speaking, female sex offenders would require different explanations for their behavior. Got it. But what comes to mind a lot for me are is this idea of cognitive distortions. If you Uh, give me a second, I will connect that to a broader uh, criminological theory. Okay. But, um, anyways, for those of you that don't know, cognitive distortions are these sort of irrational thoughts that distort our perception of reality. And so we all have them. um, But they do play a significant role in sort of perpetuating our psychological state. So these are often patterns that are automatic and can be hard to identify if you're not aware of them. So some common ones that everybody engages in are, if I fail at something, I'm a loser, I can never do anything right. So many sex offenders use these to justify and excuse their behavior. Uh And so they minimize or deny the damage caused to victims, minimize the violence used in their offense. So, you know, I raped her, but I didn't hurt her. I
2: already know what theory you're going to link this to, just so you know. But keep going. Sorry.
0: (laughs) Denying responsibility for the offense. So she was asking for it or she was drunk. Denying planning. And then the last is entitlement. So that idea that people some people are superior to others and deserve to have their needs met. So I think that entitlement distortion, would be something that applies to Epstein and Maxwell.
2: And so, Megan, in theoretical terms, this is the, these are the techniques of neutralization.
0: Yeah, Sykes and Matza. Sykes so, and Matza, situational um,
2: excuses that allow an offender to engage in behavior with by but relieve the, them of the guilt.
0: Absolutely. So these have really been well-documented in male rapists and uh, yes. child sexual abusers. Right. So we have sense. to... Be careful, um, because although they're documented amongst female sex offenders, we don't have that much much research to support it. Right. Understood. So, yeah. So it, there's, you know, a sense that it, these sort of same rules apply. Um, What was interesting is to me is that when the entitlement component was identified in female sex offenders, they didn't reference the self as being entitled. They referenced their male co-offender as being entitled. Ah,
2: understood. And I,
0: yeah, I thought that was very interesting and very telling in in this case as well.
2: Wow. Okay. That makes sense. Techniques of neutralization. Okay. That makes sense to me too. I'm seeing both of it. I'm seeing your (laughs) point of view now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> on a on a last note here i want to briefly discuss even though we don't know what's going to happen right now to galane and the criminal justice system but i'd like to maybe discuss what we think amy and i usually do this we end up with what we think is appropriate like well what yeah. should the criminal justice system do with galane maxwell mm-hmm. um so would she benefit from punishment um would she benefit from rehabilitation mm-hmm. what do you think is uh, is appropriate here
0: So it's really, I think it's so complicated when we say, would somebody benefit from going to prison? Because I'm just, I don't know, I'm anti-carceration, so (laughs) I find that, that hard to say. However, in this case, especially because Epstein is no longer around to be held accountable, I do feel that it's appropriate for her to spend some sort of time, you know, fulfilling a prison sentence, of course. I do also think, though, that a treatment, sex offender treatment program is necessary for her. I think it's important. Would it work? That's a good question. So it really, if she is able to understand and sort of empathize with the harm that she's caused, it can work. And people can learn to do that for the most part. Hmm. Okay. Um, But so far, she's not really showing any signs of, you know, being held accountable, like taking accountability or holding herself responsible. So, you know, I think that she needs a lot of treatment and a lot of treatment or a rat that sort of focuses on her relationship with males in her life. Like, mm. how did she get caught up in this relationship? How does she avoid that in the future? I mean, I know she's like in her 50s now. She's 58. So, so you know, she might not get out till she's a lot older, if we're assuming she's going to go to prison for a significant period, but she needs to understand sort of what led up to this happening and why her behavior, why she let her behavior sort of get so out of control. Okay. I just, I do have faith in some sort of treatment and rehabilitation. Though, I'm, I'm
2: glad to hear that actually, you know, I, I was, I was thinking about this myself. I like to think about, you know, how People are worried that she's going to strike a sweet plea deal and she's not going to serve any time. I actually don't believe that's going to happen. I believe the charges are so significant and there is people really want justice, um, especially after Mm -hmm. Epstein's death. So I believe Ghislaine Maxwell is going to serve serious prison time and I believe it's deserved. However, that being Mm -hmm. said, if she is going to get out at any point. I definitely would like to see her have some type of rehabilitative program and whether, you know, mm-hmm. it's treatment, whether it's therapy, whatever it is, I'd like to see her be able to manage, and I think you, you said it really well, or figure out, manage these, her behavior and how, figure out how it's step, where it came from mm-hmm. and, and maybe work yeah. on, like, as you said, changing her relationship or dynamic with the men in her life. I think that's really important.
0: Yeah. And that ends up, you know, what's also interesting is there's currently no treatment model specifically for female sex offenders. It's based on a male model. Like that's how new we still are in all of this. So even though we know the need for like gender responsive programming for female offenders and all of that stuff, that has not made it over yet Oh, to focus on sex offenders, but The proposed programs all say that you need to work on if there's a co-offender, like what was that co-offending relationship? And then the other significant part would be her history of trauma. So the death of her father, I think, played a role in shaping her relationships with men. And, you know, she may have never dealt with that trauma. And if she truly believes her father was murdered, that's you know, that would weigh on you psychologically. So I would be hopeful that if she got that treatment, she'd eventually be able to say, this is what I did. And I'm sorry for it. And I'm taking steps to make sure it doesn't happen again. Best case scenario.
2: (laughs) I I agree with you, Alexa. I appreciate that point of view. And uh, let's hope that Ghislaine Maxwell can take responsibility. And hopefully her victims Mm -hmm. will get the justice they deserve. Thank you again, Alexa, for being with us. Uh, I would like you just to remind everyone the name of your podcast and your platform so where they can find it.
0: Sure. So we are um, Beyond Fear, the sex crimes podcast. And my co-host, Alyssa Ackerman, and I talk about myths and realities about sexual violence. And you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, basically any place you get your podcasting.
2: Wonderful. I'm sure people are going to be really interested to check it out again it's fabulous so thank you so much thank you women in crime listeners and uh, we'll see you next time on women in crime
1: Bye. Megan thank you for an amazing episode as usual now our favorite part we get to our patron questions no problem Are us get, get for going that? yeah, yeah okay. all right you want to read us off the first one sure so the first one is from Allie hi Allie hi Allie The question is, when they've researched a particularly gruesome case, what do they do to get to a happier, more positive place? I'd be interested in hearing from both Amy and Megan, given the state of things today and the challenges we're facing. I think it might be helpful for listeners to hear how two people who deal with some of the most devastating aspects of human nature cope. What a cool question. That's a great question. You want to take that one first? (sighs) I have a feeling our answers will be similar here. Can I say wine and my puppy? You can absolutely say one in your puppy. Um, I have to be honest, somehow I do a decent job compartmentalizing what we do. I also, even though I'm a pessimistic person, I am somewhat hopeful for the justice system somehow, somewhere. I guess it's from working with offenders and just seeing how redeemable people are. It just gives you like a sense of hope, so... I think maybe I am one of the lucky ones who works in the field that I don't feel that I need to cope per se. Exactly. But having a puppy helps. I know. Sauvignon Blanc from Marlborough, New Zealand helps.
2: I know. I I actually agree with you. You're right. Our answer is the same. I don't usually feel like I need to cope. In fact, I feel almost like invigorated by some of these cases, even though they are hard sometimes and they're devastating. I'm also like you. I'm like, well, what can we do? Let's talk about it. Let's. Let's figure it out. How do we make this better? So I feel like it actually motivates me more mm-hmm. so. There have been a few cases that I did find very difficult. I, I think I told you Shanda share was mm-hmm. so hard. And honestly, there's really not much you do. But you know what I mean? Like For that one, I, I mean, I even cried on that one. And yeah. then I moved past it and I worked on the next one. Yeah. For the most part, I feel inspired to keep working harder to make the system better.
1: Oh, I also wanted to add that a lot of these cases are so gruesome and s- such awful things happen, but... Somehow there's always a light part of it, whether it be a new victim advocacy organization or there's some there's something. There's
2: usually something good that comes yes. from the bad.
1: Yes. And even if it's, you know, a new a new legislation passed to right. change something that we were doing wrong or, you know, that led right. to. So that kind of helps as well. Okay. All right, then we have a question from Saga. And wait till you hear about where Saga lives. Okay. She's awesome. I grew up in Sweden and have been living the last couple of years in Tokyo, Japan. Love it. Awesome. Japan is considered a very safe country to live in, but living there has also made me very curious about the justice systems in different countries and crime within different cultures and how it all differs between them. As criminologists, have you come across anything that relates to female victims or female offenders in other countries that you think the U.S. could learn from or even implement in its own justice system. Yes, yes, and yes. Oh my God, yes. We do it worse. Like we do it the worst out of everyone. Agreed. Uh, Megan and I had the opportunity to take students with us over to the UK. We taught a class on comparative justice systems and I won't steal all of it. I'll let you talk a little bit, but I do wanna talk about the difference in prisons. Mm -hmm. We took our students to court, police facilities, but taking our students to a prison... In New Jersey, and then taking students to a prison outside of London. Wow, you just really see how we do not know what we're doing.
2: Well, they treat—they're very—they're just humanizing. You yeah, know, they're, absolutely. they're there are programs mm. for rehabilitation. You can physically see too that people oh, yeah. are working. They're taking pride in their institution. They grow some of their own food. I think that we've definitely seen our, our prisons are are among the worst. Mm-hmm. They really are. And with female victims, I—I'm sorry, I cut you off, Amy, but no. I'll just say that I think. What we should be doing better is really focusing on rehabilitation, medical needs. Absolutely. We do not do that enough. Mental health needs. And especially, we still, we're doing it a little bit more now, but treating
1: a lot of these women as victims and not offenders, because most of them have been seriously victimized. I think that, especially she mentioned she is from Sweden, and we know that Sweden has one of the best systems. I don't know exactly the numbers but I know their recidivism rate is very small compared to ours. Everyone's recidivism right. rate is small compared to ours, but I know that they they're doing things really well. We also criminalize um, crimes committed oh, yeah. by women for
2: survival purposes here and we make them bad women per se and that's something we really need to reshape our focus yeah. and how we're dealing and and not criminalizing but helping.
1: Yeah, and talking about everyone not just women, the way we criminalize drug use Of course. our of course. sentencing, our all of our policies are all just of them. punitive. We could go on and on for hours. We'll stop on there. that. Yeah. <laughs> and then lastly we have Jamila, who has a gorgeous name. Love it. Out of all the cases that you've both studied, which case either fascinates or boggles you two the most? Two cases I am fascinated with and just can't get enough of are Darley Rudier. Ah, we hear you on that one. Absolutely. And Aaron Hernandez. Obviously, she says I know he's not a woman, but still, yes, Aaron Hernandez case is quite fascinating. I'm not as fascinated with his only because I understand it. Like, I get it. Uh So I'm more fascinated with cases that I
2: don't know the outcome or I can't prove, you know what I mean? Yes. So I I was interested. I love the documentary,
1: but Darlie Rudier, I'm obviously, I covered it. What else, Amy? Who else for you? Oh, for me, I don't want to spoil it too much because we have an upcoming episode, but I have to say- Cindy James. One of the most boggling wow. cases. Okay. One of the most boggling cases. Of course there's the cases of Natalie Holloway and JonBenet and I could go on and on about okay. cases but I'm going to have to say if I had to pick one right now it is Cindy James. What about you? I'm still, I'm going to go John JonBenet always, Melanie McGuire because I yes. want to solve this
2: and Martha Moxley which is one I forget to mention. Yes. What happened to Martha Moxley I covered that also in an episode and I, I'm coming up yep. but so those are the ones that stay with me. Great. Thank and you. as
1: always please send us your case suggestions we get some of our best ones from you all thank you thank you again we love the questions
2: women in crime is written and hosted by megan Sachs and amy schlossberg our producer and editor is james varga our music is composed by dessert media if you enjoy the show, you can get access to ad-free episodes, exclusive AMAs, and other bonus content for a small monthly contribution through Patreon. To find out more, visit patreon.com slash crime. Sources for today's episode include Vanity Fair, the documentary Jeffrey Epstein, Filthy Rich, a report from CBS News, NPR, and Forbes. Seeking the
1: truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s.